You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Michael Duffy sits down with Dan Balls, Ruth Marcus, and Charles Lane to discuss the January 6th Select Committee hearing and the Cuban government crackdown after recent protests. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to First Look, WashingtonPostLive.com's first look in the morning uh, at news and analysis of the day. I'm Michael Duffy, Opinions Editor-at-Large, and joining me this morning to start is Dan Balls, the Dean of the Political Press Corps and the Chief Political Correspondent of the Washington Post. Good morning, Dan. Always great to see you. Good morning, Michael. Good to see you. Uh, It appears now after many years and much talk and a lot of coverage, we finally have some movement, official movement, uh, toward uh, uh, action on infrastructure. It's, of course, just a beginning. Um, but it has been a long time. The, uh, the measure in front of the Senate now is just the first part of a multi-trillion dollar uh, set of measures that the Biden uh, White House would like to see move forward. Um, but it has been a long time coming. Why the sudden shift, Dan? Um, Michael, I think a couple of things. One is, as you suggest, I mean, this has been a priority for a long time. Um, this is not a new issue. It's an old issue, and it's an old issue that people have wanted to try to, you know, come together on, frankly, across parties uh, to get it done. I think there are two big reasons. One is President Biden's commitment to try to do something um, in, in a bipartisan fashion. Um, he talked about that from the beginning of his campaign, frankly, for president, and certainly in uh, the early days of his presidency. And this this was the measure uh, that I think he thought was the best opportunity to demonstrate that there was still an opportunity uh, for two sides to work together on it. But I also think that the that the group of ten senators who were at the at the at the point on this, uh, who had come together late last year um, to pass another COVID relief bill, um, and were determined to try to see what they could do on this one. I think everybody had a commitment that this needed to be done, both for the reasons of infrastructure needs, but also as a demonstration that Washington isn't completely broken. And um, the group of senators seemed to get larger as we went through the spring and summer, enough uh, from both parties to make me think there might even be some reason for optimism on, on bipartisanship. Is that silly of me? No, it may not be silly of you. I think I, I, I still think that these are exceptions to the rule of a of a deeply divided Congress and a deeply divided country. Um, and so, on on so many other things, uh, the two parties go their own ways, and and the gulf between them, both ideologically and now, you know, in a sense, the the differences in their bases make it very very difficult. I mean, if you you know if you think of the other major things that are at work here. Um, there's very little prospect for a bipartisanship on the, the second and gigantic piece of what President Biden hopes to pass, which is um, what he calls the human infrastructure bill, which is at this point um, not fully formed, but in the neighborhood of three and a half trillion dollars. Um, voting rights has, you know, is, has completely separated the two parties. The January 6th insurrection has separated the two parties. Maybe criminal justice reform, a uh, policing bill is still a possibility for bipartisanship. Um, but I, I guess the other thing is that you know this is you know this is kind of an issue of muscle memory. Uh, nobody remembers how to work in a bipartisan way, or very few people do. And, and so it may it may take you know success in this area to 
persuade people or to give people incentive to try to do it in some other areas. Um, but what those particular issues and policies are, uh, that's where I think the, you know, the, the sticking point is. Uh, no sooner had the bipartisan group uh, completed its work and, and, and got an agreement to move forward than the former president, uh, Donald Trump, had criticized the measure, uh, clearly hopes it will not uh, proceed. Um, is his uh, criticism, uh, will that make it harder to pass, uh, particularly in the House, uh, or is that not relevant? Well, it's not irrelevant, it's simply because all Republicans know that he continues to have influence. But I think it's a question of where his influence will be most felt. Um, you know, the, the, the decision to open debate on the infrastructure bill, the Senate vote the other day, um, there were 17 Republicans who went along with all 50 Democrats. I mean, that's a lot of Republicans who said, we think this is a good idea and we ought to go forward. Uh, there will be, you know, there will be forward motion and then setbacks until this either does or doesn't get done. I mean, I think that's the nature of, of something this big and, and complex and, and, and in which each party has its own concerns and, and suspicions about the other side. Um, this bill's going to struggle in the House. There's no question about it. The, the liberal Democrats are, you know, you know, have questions about it. Um, conservatives will vote against it. But the, uh, I think that at this point, there's more likelihood that this bill passes despite what the president says, uh, the former president, excuse me, um, than, than not. I mean, I think it's, again, everybody seems to have a sense of self-interest that um, you need to get the infrastructure bill in order to also get the, the big reconciliation package that will start in the Senate and then head to the House. One more question about the former president. This week, uh, there was a uh, Republican primary in Texas for a House seat. Um, the Trump-backed candidate lost. Um, does that tell us anything about uh, the former president's influence either inside the party or in general, in your view? I, I, Michael, I think it tells us a little bit, but not necessarily a lot. I mean, special elections are special elections, and they're, <clears throat> you know, they're given to all sorts of, of vagaries. Dave Weigel of our staff, who covered this race far more closely than I did, uh, has made the point that um, the, the Trump-backed candidate, Susan Wright, Rice, uh, sorry, Susan Wright, not Susan Rice, excuse me, um, was not a particularly energetic or active candidate, uh, nor did former President Trump do much more than send out a few, you know, statements saying she's the candidate I want. Um, and so candidates and campaigns still matter despite endorsements. We know that endorsements are sometimes valuable, but not always. And um, so I, I wouldn't read too much into this. I think that in, in, primaries going forward, Republican candidates on the whole will want Donald Trump's support rather than not his support. Um, but it doesn't mean that getting Donald Trump's support um, necessarily guarantees that you're going to win a primary. Uh, and a quick question before we finish about the news on the uh, pandemic front. Uh, the, uh, the other big news, of course, this week was that there have been shifting guidelines from the government as well as uh, the federal government as well as local government about the use of uh, masks. Uh, is this create a danger for the Biden White House as it tries to uh, move the country out of uh, a, a mode of shutdown and shut in uh, toward uh, gradual reopening? What, what, what do you think the impact of that will be politically? Well, I, I mean, we're, we're in a 
period of flux and therefore confusion. And uh, it's always difficult for an administration that has um, whose message from the very beginning is we're going to get through this and uh, we're going to get the vaccinations in people's arms and we're going to reach that point where we're going to have the equivalent of herd immunity uh, and we will be able to open up. And this Delta variant has proven to be um, far more dangerous than people thought at the beginning, far more transmissible. Uh, and it's it's causing, obviously, reassessment of what are the best and, and protocols to use. Um, Clearly, masks are coming back in indoor situations in various places. Um, various companies are saying that their employees will have to be vaccinated to be back in the office. Um, but for the Biden administration, this is going to be a big challenge because, one, they're going to have to temper their message. Two, they're going to have to, you know, not just double down, but triple down or quadruple down on, on, on pushing vaccinations and finding ways to, you know, to persuade people who have been um, resistant, reluctant, or, or on unwilling uh, to get a vaccine to, to be vaccinated. So, um, w w you know, it, it couldn't come at a worse time, obviously, because everything has been pointing to a reopening in the fall, particularly schools. Um, and the degree to which that doesn't happen or that the, the, the ground rules are going to be different uh, is going to be confusing to people, and that's going to cause problems um, and backlash. Dan, always thoughtful, always great to see you. Thanks for taking time with us this morning and be careful out there. All right, thanks. You too, Michael. And now on to uh, the opinion side and our two guests this morning, editor Deputy Editorial Page Editor Ruth Marcus. Morning, Ruth. Good morning, Michael. And political columnist Chuck Lane. Uh, good morning, Chuck. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Mike. Okay, Ruth, Washington has been talking about infrastructure for years, longer if we want to admit our age. Um, but this week it really did take a first step. What do you think are the big hurdles that it faces? Um, I think that the big hurdles that it faces um, are not from Republicans at this point. Republicans have made a decision that their desire to deny President Biden and Democrats of victory is outweighed by the fact that they dangled this infrastructure package, um, which had bipartisan support in front of the American people, and they were going to get blamed more for yanking it back than they were going to benefit from denying Biden a victory. So the problems are twofold and they're intertwined. They are for President Biden and the Democratic leadership to navigate between the two wings of their own party to make sure that Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin stay on board, not on board this package, but that they we that Democrats are capable of crafting this larger five trillion reconciliation package in a way that will keep those two critical votes on board. Um, and the reason that that's important is that, as you suggested in your previous conversation with Dan, liberal Democrats can start to balk if they think that bigger rug is going to be pulled out from under them. Um, and then finally, there is the um, known unknown, which is that the Democrats majority in the Senate could, if something terrible happens to an individual senator, disappear at any time. So things look much, much better for uh, this package now than they did a week ago. And I think they look very good for the package, but that's not to say it's smooth sailing. 
Chuck, do you agree? Do you think the biggest single threat to the um, the measure comes from right or left? Well, Peter Fa uh, Peter Fazio, who is the uh, progressive chairman of transportation in the House side, is furious because he's been bypassed uh, on this deal, and apparently behind closed doors he resorted to some pretty strong language to express that the other day. And that's indicative of a certain mood on the left in the Democratic Party in the House who feel that, you know, the party is letting itself be jammed by uh, uh, this group of Republicans and Democrats who are willing to play with Republicans in the Senate. I think that can all be worked out. But if the, if the question is, where is the friction going to come from, I think it's going to come from that direction. Um, and then, you, of course, you have this kind of wild card that was thrown into it uh, yesterday, or maybe it was the day before, when Kirsten Cinema said she's not for a $3.5 trillion uh, companion bill on the human infrastructure side, so to speak. Uh, if she's a no on that, uh, you've got to go back to the drawing board on that bill and you know, there are a lot of Democrats who just won't won't let the infrastructure go until they know what the companion is going to be. But it's very it's actually very hard to gauge where that whole business stands. I tend to come down the same place where Ruth does is at the end of this, the, the self-interest of most of the people in Congress will be at least get the infrastructure done. But there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of very interesting political drama between now and then. Uh, there's been also quite dramatic news uh, overnight about uh, not only the um, virulence of the Delta variant, but also uh, a considerable amount of movement, guys, on guidance from the government about uh, how we are to comport ourselves in this environment over the next couple of weeks and months. Um, uh, I thought I'd try to get your thoughts on that. Chuck, you wrote last week in a column that it was time to start paying people to take the vaccine. Um, so I guess I thought I'd ask, uh, is it $100 enough, which is what the president, $100 enough, that's what the president suggested the uh, state and local governments use to pay people to take the vaccine. Is that enough? And is it fair to ask some people to take it for free and and let others get paid to do it? I just want to say this is the first time anyone's ever listened to one of my columns. So okay. I'm very excited well, it may, that it, uh, it, it may not happen again, but it's it's happening now. <laughs> um, and but I just want to say if it all goes wrong, it's not my fault. Um, you know, it's interesting right now as we speak in Colorado, they they have been actually for about a week offering $100 Walmart gift cards to people to get vaccinated. And I've asked the state or any data they might have on how that's working out, but it's a little too early. I have seen anecdotally that the lines for vaccination increased and local media found people saying they were encouraged to do it because they and, and everybody in their family who did it got $100 for back to school and so on. Um, I think this is something that's, uh, obviously I wrote it, I think it's a smart idea. Um, I think it's in part a smart idea because people respond to incentives generally, but also I think, look, we're in a new game. We didn't know what we were, we didn't know we were headed for this wicked Delta variant. And, you know, in a way, desperate times call for desperate measures. I, I fully understand the people who are upset 
that, look, I did it and nobody paid me, except that I think what they're overlooking is that if you got it for you got it for free too. number one, it was a thing of value. And number two, a lot of people have been paid already to do this. A lot of uh, companies am I freezing up? Uh, a lot of uh, companies have already paid have already paid people to get the vaccine. And the government has been uh, underwriting some of these corporate programs for free time off to get the vaccine and so on. So I think what President Biden is doing, he acknowledged the concerns that people have. I think it's very pragmatic and uh, it's the kind of thing you do when you're in an emergency. Ruth, do you agree? Is this, I thought is this Chuck a good step? freezing up was going to just give me free reign to talk for the rest of our time, but <laughs> that's okay. Uh, well, I am all, I'm all for carrots. Um, I do not care at all if some people are unhappy that they didn't get their $100. This is not about fairness. It's about public health and the safety of us and all of our families. The problem with Chuck's very good column um, was that it didn't go far enough because carrots aren't adequate here. Um, we need to have sticks. And I think that I was very pleased to see President Biden wielding some degree of stick um, when talking about either mandates or in intensive repeated testing for federal workers. Uh, I think he should go further. I think he could extend it now to the military. I'd extend it to all federal contractors. I wouldn't give people a choice. Uh, we don't have a choice at the Washington Post, um, except with, you know, with exceptions, private employers, state governments, the federal government, colleges and universities, um, certainly healthcare institutions, everybody we can think of at this point should require vaccines with reasonable exceptions for religion and health because not getting the vaccine doesn't just affect you, it affects everybody around you with what Chuck appropriately called this wicked variant. Let's turn to that dramatic uh, hearing that we had earlier in the week with the four police officers, two from the DC police, two uh, from the US Capitol Police uh, in front of a new special panel uh, in the House that's looking into the events uh, that caused uh, the uh, January 6th riot at the Capitol. Um, Ruth, what, what's the goal of a panel like this and how do hearings like that fit in? Well, I, I think that the goal is twofold. I was riveted by the hearings and I was reminded of all the powerful hearings that I've watched and sat through before where you kind of know the testimony that's coming or you can understand the intellectually the import of the testimony that's coming but to hear the individual accounts from people who lived through that moment and what it was like for them was i am a little bit reminded of christine blasey ford's testimony or anita hill's testimony before that or some of the testimony at the previous um impeachment hearings of President Trump. Uh, hearing that personal account is just a searing reminder for people about what threat was posed to our democracy. I think the bigger goal of these hearings and the really important one is going forward, which is now we've set the stage, something terrible, everybody should acknowledge, every American should acknowledge that something terrible happened on January 6th. Then the question is, how did that happen? Who was responsible for it? What happened inside the White House? What happened inside the Pentagon? Why did things go so 
dramatically wrong um, to, for history and to understand what happened and also a little bit for prevention in the future. Chuck, it took weeks to set this panel up. It was uh, the subject of, even by uh, uh, recent standards, intense political jockeying. Uh, people were named to the panel, then turned away from the panel. Um, the Republican goal clearly going into the first hearing was to undercut the legitimacy of the group. Uh, do you think it worked? Do I think that their effort to undercut the legitimacy of the group worked? Um, I'm going to say no to that because I think people have pretty much made up their minds on one side or the other. I think there's a hardcore of Republican, pro-Trump Republicans who simply are in denial about this, and I think that's an extraordinary development. Um, but I don't. I certainly don't think they've succeeded in discrediting this uh, panel with the broader public. Um, I do think that it would have been best if we could somehow have had a more bipartisan um, process and panel. Uh, but when Kevin McCarthy chose quite provocatively to put Jim Jordan and some other highly partisan people on the panel, for Nancy Pelosi. I agree with Ruth. I think that this was very important what was going on on cameras uh, this week, but the real the real importance of this panel for history is going to be what they do much more quietly when they're gathering facts uh, behind closed doors, taking depositions, piecing together all the details uh, that are going to need to be established about exactly uh, what happened second by second as this developed, because that's where we're going to learn about the structural problems in the government that may have allowed this to happen, and uh, I hope I hope that the group is well staffed and 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 committed to doing that very uh, difficult work. Ruth, on that score, I think there was a decision this week uh, by the Justice Department. Uh, that I think it said that it would not support the claims of former Trump officials who might uh, try to escape testimony or testifying in front of this panel uh, with a claim of executive privilege, um, which hasn't always been the case uh, between White Houses and, 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 and congressional panels. What's the significance of that decision given, um, as you mentioned, uh, the, the stakes going forward? I, I think it's very significant. I think it, pres incumbent presidents, uh, have the authority to assert, assert executive privilege on behalf of their predecessors. And they're often inclined to do that because they don't want their own executive privilege, their own private, confidential, freewheeling communications with their advisors to be subject to a congressional inquiry. Uh, what the Justice Department said in this letter to the committee or to, or to the potential witnesses was we are not going to assert executive privilege on behalf of President Trump, and so you are not bound by that. I think that makes it much easier to essentially uh, to obtain or maybe even force testimony from some of the people in the Justice Department. One of the people that this um, letter went to was the former acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, to get the testimony that we really need from insiders to understand what's going on. There's been so many times in the previous administration that critical testimony was denied to congressional hearings. This is a really good move on the part of the Justice Department and very well justified. 
Uh, Chuck, one of the other things that happened this week on this on this front about the the insurrection was uh, we saw House Republican leader uh, Kevin McCarthy and and Republican Congress uh, folks like Elise Stefanik of New York suggest uh, and charge claim that uh, the events of 1-6 really were the result of actions by Democratic House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, what do you make of that? <laughs> Well, uh, I, I, I haven't followed that particular accusation for a while. Uh, when I first encountered it, it took the form of Pelosi allegedly failing to uh, beef up the police uh, presence or preparation, notwithstanding warnings she had received. I mean, it's, it's typical politics. It's when your party is uh, on the spot and when there's a lot of uh, evidence that you guys are guilty of something bad, you just make a counter accusation against the other guys to try to, you know, see what you can get out of it and confuse the issue. I would note that there is a very interesting development in South Carolina along those lines. Um, Tom Rice, who's one of the moderate Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump in a, uh, a pretty safe Republican district down in South Carolina, has just gotten a primary challenger. And the primary challenger's campaign is basically, it was bad that he voted to impeach Trump after January 6th. Um, that's the mood uh, in the Republican base. And Kevin McCarthy and Elise Stefanik are behaving accordingly. Last uh, question for both of you. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's about, again, the importance of the insurrection in the year. Uh, when it first happened, I think we'd all agree that this uh, seemed and felt like uh, a major event that would have long uh, legs and lasting implications for our politics. Uh, six or seven months on, I'm, I'm less clear about that. Uh, what's your sense, and I, I know this is a tough one, but can we do it quickly since we're nearly out of time, about whether this will continue to uh, uh, have an impact? Um, if I'll, if I can go first, um, I yeah, think sure. that Sorry, it, 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 I think it does, um, and I think it does in two ways. Uh, first of all, on January sixth, seventh, and eighth, we had people like Kevin McCarthy, uh, like uh, Senate Majority Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, talking about the horror of January sixth and how it cannot be allowed to happen again. That has dissipated, and that's not politics as usual, just to disagree for a bit with Chuck. That is the ultimate gaslighting to throw this on Nancy Pelosi. If there was ever a time for Congress to be able to come together, it should have been in defense of the safety and sanctity of its own institution. So the fact that, that it's, we've devolved into this state is very, very worrisome for things going forward. And the second is that okay. we're having essentially a slow motion insurrection in the form of laws that could permit a, a January 6th outcome to come up differently with um, a further a certification of votes in 2025. Sorry, I went on. That's okay, Chuck, we're out of time. I can't, you're gonna have to save it for your next column, which we'll talk about on the next show. <laughs> but thank I'm you. I'm apologizing to Chuck, sorry, Chuck. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, Chuck. Thanks for watching. Uh, to find out all the other programs that are available on WashingtonPost.com, WashingtonPostLive.com, please check out our website and have a great day. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.